Today I'd like to talk about an underlying theme that runs through the entire book. Uh, but before I get on to that, I should explain how I approached the subject in the first place. In my preface, I note that pet keeping is extremely popular in New Zealand, something that most of us instinctively know from our own experience and observations. And it is confirmed by a survey carried out in 2011 by the New Zealand Companion Animal Council. This found that 68% of New Zealand households had at least one pet, um, a higher percentage than Australia, the United States or Britain. 48% of New Zealand households had a cat, many had more than one, a statistic that no doubt would cause Gareth Morgan some grief. 29% had a dog and many had other pets such as rabbits, birds, guinea pigs and fish. In writing the book, I tried to shed light on exactly why pets are so important in a country where attitudes towards many f working, farm and introduced wild animals are extremely pragmatic and indeed often harsh. Early on, I decided to define pets very broadly to include all animals that were regarded as companions. And that, of course, drew in some of these other animals that people had dealings with. The upshot is that the discussions of the book often extend from pets to animals generally. So you may be wondering whether I was able to establish exactly why pets are so popular in this country. I think that the book does point to some possible reasons. One is that pet keeping has a very long history here. Māori bought Kuri, or Polynesian dogs, from East Polynesia in their migration waka, and this painted carving represents Potaka Tafiti, a famous Kuri belonging to Te Arawa ancestor Homai Tafiti. And um, the story behind this is that uh, the killing of Potaka Tafiti uh, caused a war that led to the migration of Te Arawa to Aotearoa. So very important dog, and that name was used again for subsequent Kuri, so it's a name with great resonance. Following the arrival of Māori in the 13th century, these Kuri became vital for assisting with hunting and the exploring of new territory. Kuri had various practical uses in providing food, uh, fur for cloaks and so on, and indeed their flesh was eaten as a delicacy but it is clear that they were often regarded as companions. Māori also tamed indigenous birds such as kaka and tui and taught them to speak. Birds, as the children of Tāne, god of the forest, often had important symbolic and ritual roles. For instance, a tui trained to give a formal speech of welcome would address visitors to the marae. Pets, or mokai as they were known, therefore helped Māori adapt to a strange environment on arrival in this country and they remained significant in daily life. The same was true for Pākehā settlers from the mid-19th century, and helping people to come to terms with new surroundings is perhaps another reason why pet keeping has particular significance in New Zealand. Pets played a discreet but vital role in all our foundational stories. 
From the 1840s, the better of British immigrants often brought companion animals with them on the long sea voyage from the Northern Hemisphere and valued them highly as a link with people and places they had left behind. Less well-off immigrants, once they had arrived in New Zealand, were eager to acquire animals such as cats and dogs, not just for the companionship they provided, but for the practical assistance they could give in controlling rodents and guarding the home. So this painting of 1849 shows a settler family and their dog, that's the dog there, um, surveying the new town of Dunedin. Paintings like this, photographs and other evidence, including children's letters published in newspapers, point to just how popular pet keeping was here by the late 19th and early 20th century. This phenomenon was not unique to New Zealand. Throughout the Western world, it seems that pet keeping became increasingly popular from the 19th century. Of course, it had existed for centuries in many cultures. For example, in Britain, prestigious animals were traditionally the favourites of kings and queens, and as historian Keith Thomas has shown, the practice of pet keeping had spread to all classes by the 18th century. And this is a, an interesting um, old illuminated manuscript which shows King John with one of his hunting dogs, but there seems to be in the background a little pet dog, possibly. Okay, so um, back to, as uh, historian Keith Thomas has shown, the practice of pet keeping had spread to all classes by the 18th century. So what changed? There were various developments, but one of the most significant was a fundamental shift in the way people believed they should treat animals. Nowadays, there's a common assumption that a person who keeps pets also believes in the importance of being kind to animals, encapsulated in the much-used expression, animal lover. This was not always the case. Indeed, pet keeping preceded general acceptance of kind treatment of animals by many centuries. How people behave towards pets and animals more generally is the drama at the heart of my book, and it is this I want to talk about today. The idea is there in many sections of the book, but in one chapter I address it more directly, describing the new campaign to change attitudes towards animals that emerged not long before Pākehā settlement of New Zealand. In the 19th century, its supporters were battling hard to win hearts and minds, and pets provided a bridge across the philosophical abyss. In addition, I suggest that one particular triumph of the campaign helps explain how pet keeping became even more popular. Britain was the main source of 19th century Pākehā pet traditions and it is interesting to note that in the 18th century the British were widely regarded as being particularly callous towards animals. This image, which incidentally my publisher refused to let me include in the book because she was so revolted by it, reveals the kind of depraved cruelty that was apparently not uncommon on the streets of London in the middle of that century. Artist William Hogarth, who was very fond of animals, was so appalled by what he saw from day to day that he published a now famous series of engravings, The Four Stages of Cruelty, in 1751. 
These suggested that cruelty to animals in childhood inevitably led on to violent crime against people in adulthood. And this engraving from the series depicts the first stage of cruelty. The villain of the story, Tom Nero, is shown torturing a dog. Let's see if I can pick him out. That's him, I think. Um, despite the efforts of a young man to stop him. Nearby, other young ruffians torment domestic animals, including cats, dogs, and birds. Hogarth was ahead of his time, but over the next 60 years, more people began to speak out against abuse of animals. Various historians have analysed why and how this happened. It would be impossible to discuss all the theories in detail here. I can but summarise. One reason was scientific discoveries which led to a greater understanding of animals and animal behaviour and a subsequent weakening of the prevailing anthropocentric view of the world. Another was the, the Romantic movement in art and literature which was characterised by reverence for the natural world and all the creatures in it. In addition, philosophers such as Jeremy Bentham were influential in suggesting a new perspective on animals. Bentham famously remarked, the question is not can they reason, nor can they talk, but can they suffer? The recognition that both animals and humans were sentient beings and could experience pain was critical in turning the tide of opinion. Then there was the rise of non-conformist and evangelical Christian sects, such as Wesleyan Methodists. Their adherents were stirred to action by various forms of cruelty and oppression, including slavery and brutal punishments for crime. It was in the context of broader social reform that the first attempts were made to introduce legislation to prevent cruelty to animals in the early 19th century. The first British Anti-Cruelty Act was passed in 1822 and the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals was established in London in 1824. It is interesting to note that William Wilberforce, um, shown here, who is now best remembered as the leader of the crusade against slavery, was a founding member of the London SPCA. Wilberforce was heavily influenced in his moral views by an evangelical conversion as a young man, and while he was in some respects socially very conservative, he supported a range of reform causes throughout his life. The links between social crusades opposing oppression and vice endured throughout the 19th century. Temperance and prevention of cruelty movements became associated because they were both campaigning against forces that were seen as socially disruptive. Family violence was a concern of both. Temperance campaigners noted that male breadwinners who overindulged in alcohol were often brutal towards their wives and children, and sometimes animals as well. Campaigners for animals were aware of the connection between cruelty to animals and cruelty to other dependents, children in particular, but also economically dependent wives. These different types of coercive violence evidently had similar origins. It seems that at least some people recognised that violence in the home arose from the commonly held belief that domestic animals, children and wives all fell into the category of property to be used at the owner's whim. 
and it is important to note that that belief was legally sanctioned at the time. In the United States, wealthy social reformer Henry Berg, who had initiated the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals in 1866, went on to establish the New York Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children in 1874. In Britain, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, as it was now known, lobbied for a similar society to prevent cruelty to children and was closely associated with the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children after it was established in London in 1884. The American Humane Society was from 1877 the umbrella organisation for local groups that worked to eliminate abuse of both children and animals. The connection between types of violence, nowadays referred to as the link, was it seems perfectly evident to social reformers in the 19th century and they organised themselves to oppose it accordingly. As various historians, notably American historian Catherine Greer have shown, idealising of the family was a widespread middle class value in the 19th century. Many people believed or came to believe that pet keeping was a way of teaching children virtues such as patience, responsibility and gentleness towards others. Once the principle of showing kindness to animals became more widely accepted, the use of pets to socialise children gained a further moral dimension. Promotion of childhood pet keeping, which was seen as both improving and a way of enhancing family life, is a key explanation for the upsurge in pet keeping from the 19th century. These ideas, the importance of pets in child rearing and the moral duty of kindness to animals, were imported to settle in New Zealand. The impact of the second can be seen in the way British law was applied in the new colony. Newspapers regularly reported in detail on court cases for, for animal cruelty offences. The wording of the English Act also influenced later legislation in this country. Like the English RSPCA, the first New Zealand SPCAs in Christchurch, Dunedin, Auckland and Wellington were established with the aim of helping to police the law. They emerged within a few years of the passage of the first New Zealand National Act to prevent cruelty to animals, and that was the Cruelty to Animals Act 1878. So this slide shows an extract from a newspaper account of the meeting that set up the New Zealand SPCA in Christchurch in 1882 and that was the first SPCA. It was later renamed the Canterbury SPCA when other SPCAs were established in other cities. Um, and it's important to note that at this stage there was no such thing as the New Zealand SPCA. All SPCAs were set up as independent organisations. They did federate about 1933 and now the Royal New Zealand SBCA is like the umbrella organisation, but really in the 19th century and well into the 20th, SBCAs operated quite independently. There were other parallels between the English and the New Zealand situations. The New Zealand SBCAs, like the RSBCA, were concerned at first about cruelty to farm animals and beasts of burden. From the 1880s, there were increasing numbers of cab and tram horses in the emerging cities. 
These animals were regularly beaten, overloaded, underfed, to the dismay and sometimes to the horror of onlookers. So New Zealand SPCAs often imported English literature on the proper treatment of horses to distribute to cab drivers. How successful that was, I don't know. The shift of attention to pet animals, which is now a major emphasis of many SPCAs, came much later. And like the RSPCA, New Zealand SPCAs were particularly keen to promote humane education for children. The early SPCAs often stated this as a primary goal. It gained widespread support partly because it fitted nicely with educational goals at a time when compulsory education was fairly new in New Zealand. In addition, it was seized upon because it was consistent with middle-class ideas about well-regulated family life and child-rearing. There was awareness that children, unless taught otherwise, were capable of being very cruel to animals, and this clearly concerned parents and teachers. One newspaper column of 1888 even suggested that colonial children, whose play often involved some hair-raising escapades and rather shocking activities that involved cruelty to animals, were less innocent and childlike than their English cousins. So this cartoon, published in the New Zealand Farmer in 1887, illustrates a common way of teaching children kindness to animals. The title is A Change of Opinion, and in the top frame, Tommy is shown being cruel to a kitten by holding, and its mother, who's hovering anxiously below, um, by holding the kitten up by its head. In the second frame, the horse holds Tommy up in the air as the cat and kitten make their escape. And the accompanying homily says, perhaps it will make him think when he's playing with kittens and puppies that what is fun to him is perhaps not fun to them a bit. A slightly less punitive tactic was to encourage diligent keeping of pets by children. This was increasingly used as a way to instill the principle of compassion towards animals. It was accepted in some quarters by the time New Zealand SPCAs were being established. An article for children in the New Zealand Farmer in 1885 warned its young readers, you have a duty to perform to whatever pet you possess. If you neglect that duty, you are committing a great sin and do not deserve to possess anything that lives and breathes. Classroom pets were even suggested as a way of bringing the lesson home. In 1881, a magazine for teachers called The New Zealand Schoolmaster published a sample science lesson on the anatomy and habits of the cat, and the writer commented, I have found that good results follow from allowing a cat to be a regular inmate of the schoolroom. By taking care that she is not ill-treated, the principle of kindness to dumb animals will be better inculcated than in any other way. The first New Zealand SPCAs were quick to set up young persons' branches, as they were called, often with the assistance of local school teachers who helped with the recruiting of members. These children's divisions became immensely popular and I suggest would have given heart to SPCAs who had some difficulty attracting adult members and funding support at the time. 
while the SPCA in New Zealand is now a widely respected and high profile organisation, in the 19th century its adult members were often regarded as slightly obsessive faddists. Towards the end of the 19th century, the young person's branches morphed into bands of mercy, a very interesting concept that had its origins in England. The first band of mercy was established there in 1875 by Catherine Smithies, who was both an RSPCA member and a temperance advocate. Although the Bands of Mercy came under the wing of the SPCA in 1883, they were from the start strongly associated with the temperance movement, which as many of you will know had junior clubs called Bands of Hope. And Bands of Mercy spread throughout the Western world, they became very popular in many countries and this interesting very staged photograph from around 1890 shows the members of an American band of mercy and I'm sorry it's a rather blurred photo but you can tell from the expression on their faces that this particular stunt was not their idea. Um, <laughs> looking rather grim there. Um, both junior organisations centred around taking a pledge in the case of the Band of Hope, to abstain from liquor. In the case of the Band of Mercy, to prevent cruelty and be kind to animals. Usually the wording of the pledge, the Band of Mercy pledge, was something like, I will try to be kind to all harmless living creatures and protect them from cruel usage. Um, however, this beautifully decorated RSPCA Band of Mercy declaration, which dates from 1895, um, the wording is, we agree to be kind to animals and do all in our power to protect them from cruelty and promote their kind treatment. Often Band of Hope members recruited also for the Band of Mercy. I've seen evidence of this happening in New Zealand. And as I mentioned earlier, there were strong ideological links between the temperance and anti-cruelty mo uh, movements, which seemed to have arisen from a concern to uphold secure family life and promote social harmony. In New Zealand, Bands of Mercy sprang up everywhere from the mid-1880s, and it is no interesting to note that they were not always under the direct control of the SPCA. Some were organised by churches or by schools. In addition, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, a significant national organisation, as most of you will know, with an interest in a wide range of feminist issues, including votes for women, seems to have run some bands of mercy. New Zealand feminists at that time were often associated with churches and the temperance movement and wanted to enhance family life, so they were sympathetic to related social causes. Their take on social problems, of course, centred very much on the legal and social obstacles faced by women and children. However, the Society for the Protection of Women and Children, established in the main centres from the 1890s, became associated with New Zealand SPCAs. This was partly because of kindred aspirations, but mainly because both organisations struggled to get enough funds to employ inspectors, and inspectors went round sussing out instances of cruelty um, and acting on them um, and bringing the perpetrators to justice. 
In fact, in Auckland, the two societies, the, the SPCA and the Society for the Protection of Women and Children, merged for a time with the rather awkward title the Society for the Protection of Women and Children and Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Anyway, back to the bands of mercy. I became particularly fascinated by the Wellington bands, which were run by the local SPCA. They were established in a number of schools in the 1890s, including Thorndon, Te Aro, Mount Cook, Clyde Key, Petoni and Kilburnie schools, with the assistance of teachers. Members paid a small subscription to the SPCA, which was no doubt a welcome addition to the funds at a time when it was struggling to stay solvent. Children went along to meetings where they listened to improving lectures about the treatment of animals, sang suitable hymns and songs, and recited poems. They entered competitions for the best letter or essay on the topic of kindness to animals. Sometimes a special prize was offered for a conspicuous act of kindness towards an animal. To encourage and support the bands, in 1897 the Wellington SPCA started up a monthly pub publication for children called the New Zealand Band of Mercy. And the Alexander Turnbull Library holds what appear to be the only surviving copies of this, and this shows the first page of one of the issues. And when I was doing my research for my book, um, the National Library was undergoing redevelopment and this particular pamphlet was closed down. I was absolutely desperate to see it. I was fantasising about how I could get <laughs> hold of it. Fortunately, the National Library reopened before I finished my book, so I was able to use it. It's a very interesting publication, lacking in the kind of a colourful illustration that children would expect now, but full of articles about pets and pet keeping, as you might imagine. The most fascinating aspect for me was the children's letter writing column, where children wrote to a wise adult who went under the nom de plume of Captain Kindheart. These letters show how children really took on board the message of being kind to animals and empathised with animal suffering. Often they related this to their own pets. Eight-year-old Victor Harris, for instance, commented on a recent case where two boys had stoned a cat. He wrote, I have a little kitten named Scotty and I would be deeply grieved if she received such brutal treatment as that poor cat did. But the concern children felt for pets often extended to other animals and that was the whole point of course of using pet keeping as a way of teaching kindness. Band of Mercy members were encouraged to look out for any instance of cruelty to animals and pass on details to Captain Kindheart so the SPCA inspector could investigate. One 13-year-old girl reported one such incident and this gives an insight into what st city streets could be like in the 19th century. She wrote, I was going along the Thorndon Esplanade when a train was coming in from Kaiwara, that's how she spells it, and saw a man driving a horse and cart. As the train approached, the horse became nervous and shied, when, to make the poor horse worse, the cruel driver started hitting it with his whip. Of course, this made the horse jump about all the more. When the train had passed, the cruel man got out of the cart and kicked the horse something cruelly. I felt as though I could go and kick him. 
This was one instance where the letter writer's name was withheld to protect her from any repercussions as the SPCA inspector followed up the allegations. So, who was Captain Kindheart? He may have been the Wellington SPCA inspector, Mr A. W. Smith, who was credited with responsibility for the children's column in the paper. But there is some suggestion that the persona was a front for several people involved in the publication. Children's essay competitions were also run by Captain Kindheart, and the job of judging entries may well have been shared. For a time, the paper was edited jointly by SBCA members Arthur Richmond Atkinson and George Carwell Cook. I don't know much about Cook, but Atkinson, shown here, is reasonably well known. He was a solicitor and later a Wellington MP and city councillor, and was clearly very thoughtful about social issues, including the status of animals. The Turnbull holds at least one book from his collection, a copy of Henry Salt's revolutionary 1894 treatise, Animal Rights. Atkinson exemplifies the link between social reform causes at that time, as he was a staunch temperance campaigner belonging to the New Zealand Alliance, which was then the major national temperance organisation. He was also associated with the Wellington branch of the Society for the Protection of Women and Children in the 1890s through his fiancée, the prominent feminist Lily Kirk. I suspect this is why the Wellington SPCA and the Wellington SPWC did joint fundraising and even considered amalgamating at that time. If I am correct, and Atkinson took on the persona from time to time, then the name Captain Kindheart has particular resonance. It suggests that the title of this talk should in fact be Captain Kindheart's Crusades, for it seems clear to me, and I hope by now also to you, uh, that the cause of preventing cruelty to animals was closely allied with other reform campaigns, both in theory and in practice. In New Zealand, the Bands of Mercy seemed to have mostly fizzled out by the end of the First World War, but they were replaced by other children's organisations which emphasised the importance of kindness to animals. Boy Scouts and Girl Guides, which began in New Zealand in the early 20th century, are an example of a youth movement that took up the refrain of hum humane treatment of animals. A promise to be kind to animals soon became part of scout and guide law. Moreover, from the 1920s, SPCAs revitalised their children's education programmes and started up junior leagues in primary schools. In the 1930s and 40s, these extended to secondary schools. And this uh, Canterbury Junior League badge probably dates from that period. Since the 1950s, there have been a range of SBCA initiatives to engage and educate children, leading through to the current Royal New Zealand SBCA programme in intermediate schools, which is fit fittingly called one of the family, and encourages children to respect pets as a way of curbing violence towards both humans and animals and humans. And this photograph shows the programme's frontman, um, Norm Hewitt, with his daughter Elizabeth and the family cat, Huna. 
So one of the outcomes of 19th century humane education programs like the Band of, Bands of Mercy is that children who participated in them seem to have there, thereafter associated pet keeping with the principle of kindness to animals and vice versa. By the 1900s, many adults had been brought up with these ideas. Um, SPCAs began to emphasise the connection between them in their um, fundraising appeals. An evening post-editorial of 1919, for instance, stated the society, that is the Wellington SPCA, needs further financial help for its work, which commends itself to every man, woman and child who has loved and been greatly loved in return by some horse, dog or other pet. It is around this time too that the focus of SPCA work began to shift from mistreatment of working animals to cruelty and neglect of pet an animals. There were several reasons for this, including the gradual disappearance of horses from city streets as motor vehicles became more common. But undoubtedly the spread of education programs that emphasised the duty of care for pets as a first step towards kindness to all animals was highly influential. This is the cute photo with children with kittens that Imelda is waiting for especially. Um, <laughs> so pet keeping reinforced the principle of kindness to animals, but it worked the other way round. The moral and social appeal of humane education and its wider acceptance by the early 20th century is, I suggest, another important reason for the growth in popularity of pet keeping here. It was certainly not the only reason, I've suggested a couple earlier in this talk, and more are discussed in the book. Nor was the idea unique to this country, it was very clearly imported, like so many other philosophies. However, it certainly seems to have been enthusiastically taken up in New Zealand, first by the SPCAs, subsequently by organisations with related goals, and by schools which by the early 20th century were particularly keen on the concept of moral education, as it was called. Um, this sought to instil values such as patriotism, duty to family, and naturally kindness to animals. And of course, pet keeping appealed strongly to families as it had for some time. A final comment. 19th century humane education programs, while they were socially progressive in one sense, were also essentially conservative in that they sought to reinforce the family and the existing social order. But the idea of opposing cruelty to animals was potentially very radical. Movements that went beyond simply promoting animal welfare to advocating animal rights grew out of it. One of the most militant of animal rights groups in Britain in the later 20th century called itself, with irony, but also with an acute and perceptive sense of history, the Band of Mercy. Formed in the UK in 1971, Band of Mercy members used direct action, including attacks on property, to sabotage first hunting and later animal testing. They began raiding laboratories to liberate the animals that were kept there for various experiments. And uh, these activists are shown with beagles that have been liberated from a laboratory. 
1976, the Band of Mercy changed its name to the Animal Liberation Front and became a worldwide, largely underground movement. There have been a number of Animal Liberation Front actions in New Zealand. Such radical animal rights movements in the New Zealand context, rather than upholding the conventional and often idealised Kiwi way of life, question and critique some of its fundamental values. But that, I think, is the subject for another talk. So um, finally, I'd just like to thank you for your attention. I guess I should point out that if you're re interested in reading more about the history of pets, um, Creature Comforts is available at all good bookstores. Um, <laughs> uh, Unity Books has a good stock on their New Zealand books table.